one, I love facts and I love putting, I don't love puzzles, but I like putting pieces together on things. I love listening to uh, podcasts and stuff like that. Not true crime pro- podcasts. I don't like, I don't need to hear about, and then he stabbed her 37 times and he's still at large. No, I'm good. Don't need that in my life. But I enjoy it like, like I enjoy, I love like murder mysteries, movies like that where you find out in the end, did it? I really love, uh, there's two movies out now in this where Daniel Craig is the lead. One is uh, Knives Out. The newest one is Glass Onion. And it's a murder mystery where if you're watching hard enough, you can pick it up and figure out what's going on and stuff like that. Uh, I love that. I also love when they get me. It's hard. I grew up with my dad, which means he taught me to see certain things. So it's very difficult for a twist to get by me. Knives Out, which I did not have any part in writing or anything like that, the twist in that one got me. I went, didn't see that one coming. But I love movies like that and stuff like that, where you figure out in the end who did it. But I like to be able to try to figure that out. I like putting the pieces together. I love prophecy. Revelation is my favorite book of the Bible. And prophecy is essentially putting pieces together, right? A prophecy is made, and then, when it's God who makes it, it comes to pass. And I love to see those pieces come together of how God does things. So today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at three different prophecies made about the birth of Jesus that come to pass, and how God made them come to pass, and how we can kind of apply that to our lives, right? Not those prophecies. You can't apply, you know, like the first one we're going to look at is that he had to be born of a virgin. I'm sorry, none of us can apply that to our lives, that we should be born of a virgin, right? There's only one person ever that that's happened with, and that's Jesus. So, um, but I enjoy that sort of stuff, so I hope you enjoy it too, and we're going to take a look at three of them today. There's a bunch more about Jesus, his birth, his death, resurrection, his life, all that kind of stuff. But we're just going to look at three dealing with Jesus' birth today. And that's why this is called Connecting the Dots. Because we're going to connect the dots. Mom said, and if I had time, I would have done this because she said it on Friday and I didn't have time. I should have printed out a whole bunch of Connect the Dot sheets for you guys and handed them out. But now you just have to listen to me. All right, so number one on your note sheets is, I guess I should say letter A underneath number one is virgin birth. I already told you about that one. Virgin birth. So we read in Isaiah chapter 7 and various other places, but Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It reads, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah is prophesying here, right? God is prophesying through Isaiah that God is going to give a sign, a sign that cannot be denied, cannot be changed. You can't mistake it for who the Messiah is going to be to save Israel and eventually the world as well. Born of a virgin is the key thing. Born of a virgin. In Luke chapter 1, verses 34 through 35, we read, Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Okay, so that's part number one, that he is going to be, uh, uh, Mary is a virgin. Here is the thing, though, that we often forget about in Christmas time. She had to stay a virgin, not just a conception of a virgin. In order to be born of a virgin, she still had to be a virgin when she gives birth. 
in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 1, we read, and this is Joseph, but kept her, Joseph, Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph marries this young woman and has no sexual relations with her for nine months, at minimum. And then a lot of you in here have given birth to a child. You can't have sex after you give birth for a certain amount of time as well. Right? This was not just the, the miracle, and I love this one, right? The miracle is that Mary does not have sex, right? We're all adults in here. We understand that in order to conceive a child, sperm has to meet egg. Some way, somehow. And this is the only time in history that that's not the case. That a child was conceived, right? We're not talking about Adam and Eve here. They weren't conceived. They were just created. This is the only time in all of history that a child is conceived without those chromosomes meeting, without the help of it. The part to me as well, and, and this is less of a miracle, I guess you could say, um, there's a number of men in here and a number of married women. Um, men, if I told you for about the next year, no sex with your wife, none at all. Boy, I don't know of a man in here that goes, sign me up. Here we go. I'm ready to go. Here we go, right? And I'm not saying that we have to be like, like all men are these terrible sexual pigs. There are men who are like that. But I am saying that men aren't wired that way. We're not. We're just not. And yet, here is Joseph who cannot touch his wife in any way until after Jesus is born. And in Matthew, we read that he does it. This is a two-parter miracle. We talk so much about the conception that we forget that Joseph is a real man somewhere in his early to mid-30s most likely. We know he's at least 30 because you had to be a man in order to get married and you don't become a man until you're 30 in the Jewish culture, right? And so we know he's at least 30 years old. My guess is he's probably 33-ish, 34-ish because my guess is he didn't turn 30 and get betrothed. I'm just a guess there, right? But he's 30 or older. And men... Uh, we like to take pleasure in our wives, and that is okay. In fact, it's a good thing. It's designed that way, right? Joseph can't. This is a two-parter miracle that I just enjoy so much because we see the sacrifices that were made on Mary's part because Mary, listen, women, you also enjoy things like that. At least some of you do, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a woman. But everyone had to give up everything. It's just this incredible miracle that we see that God causes to take place. It had to be the right woman who later on in Luke, it's not up there, but later on in Luke she goes, okay, yeah, whatever you say, Lord, I am your servant. And it had to take the right man in Joseph who had the strength of character to go the same thing, to say, yes, Lord, whatever it is, whatever it is you're asking me to do, I will do it. It was this perfect combination that is not a coincidence because God doesn't deal with coincidences. God chose, created, and chose two perfect people to have a virgin birth, a virgin conception, and a virgin birth. It's not a lot of theological things I can teach you out of that one. But since we talk about the virgin birth quite a lot, I wanted to mention it. Letter B, born in Bethlehem. Born in Bethlehem. In Micah 5, 2, I had to stop and think about what scripture passage that was because I didn't write them on each slide. That was dumb of me. Uh, Micah 5, 2, we read, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathath, too little 
to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now that's how we know we're not talking about a king, a man king. Because you and I are not from eternity. Jesus is from Bethlehem. And then later on, we read in Luke chapter 2, right? And these are, the, these are the verses that everybody associates with Scripture, right? Luke chapter 2. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And therefore, or excuse me, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. So let's set the scene here, right? Way back when Micah is the prophet, he tells them that this tiny city can barely be called a city. The smallest, the littlest thing, the most insignificant one. It's too little to be even be considered among the clans of Judah. Not just of Judah, of even the different people groups, the clans of Judah. It's too small. And yet, God says, it is through them that I am going to send the Savior, the one who will be the ruler in Israel. It's through them. There's a beauty in that. Church, God is not asking you to be the biggest honcho on the block. He's not asking us to be uber-talented and uber-just-gifted. Uh, 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 He's just asking us to be willing to be used. And in fact, you read throughout Scripture, and he tends to use the small and the meek and the overlooked to do the incredible things. So how does he cause this to happen? Because Joseph, of course, is from the line of David which is another prophecy I didn't get into here, but is another the prophecy of who Jesus is going to come from. He's got to come from the line of David. So we have Joseph and his family is from the line of David. And Joseph has to get him and Mary, God has to get, excuse me, Joseph and Mary to the city of Bethlehem. So God causes a census to happen. And it's not like a census today where now you just do them online, but I remember when I was younger, the census coming, and it was just like this massive sheet of paper that you had to fill out the circles in and stuff like that, right? I never had to do that because I was young enough that I didn't have to answer that. I'm old enough now I have to take the census, but it's way easier. You just go on your computer or on your smartphone and do it. It's way simpler. But it wasn't like that. That would be like, now, I was born in Susquehanna, right, at Barnes Casson Hospital. On September 9th, 1940, uh, 1945, <laughs> I'm a little old, people. I'm a little old. I think I look great, don't you? <laughs> a little overweight, but I'll take it for being, what, what would that be, 80-some? Something like that? I'm not good at math. But, you know, I think I'm doing pretty good. September 9th, 1994, at 9.45. That's where the 45 comes from. And if every year there was a census, I have to go to Susquehanna. In order to be sent, in order to be counted, how many of you were born in Susquehanna? Louie, you're coming with me. Let's go. There's a couple back there. Well, Haley, we'll all go to Susquehanna together. Was anybody born outside of this state? That's a lot of you. Was any of you born outside of New York and Pennsylvania? There you go. Ver no, North Carolina. So you've got to go there. Where are you going? Ohio. You've got to get your stuff, go get a hotel. You were, what, Michigan, right? 
oh, well, you can stay there. But you, right, you've got to pack up. Imagine you were born in California. Even if you were only born there and two minutes later got on a plane and came here. You've got to go back there because that's where you were born. That's where you're from. Now, here's the great thing, right? At least back then, you could call it a great thing if you'd like to, right? Ladies, it doesn't matter where you were born. It matters where your father was born or where your husband was born. So Aunt Lori back there has got to go to Carolina with her husband, right? You don't have to go back to New Jersey. Where were you born, Lonnie? So you've got to, you get to stay here, right? That's nice, I guess. You don't have to travel to two different places, I guess, right? This was a massive undertaking in this empire because this was not just in the Holy Land area in Israel and such. This was an empire-wide census. And for those of you that don't know, the Roman Empire stretched from Spain into Asia. It was a massive empire. Huge. And so let's say you happen to be a Roman centurion on duty in Spain. You've got to make your way back to maybe Rome. Maybe you've got to make your way back to the Middle East. Maybe you've got to make your way back to... This was a massive undertaking. Add in, if I may, I don't know if I wrote this down here. I didn't. I didn't. Add in, Mary is pregnant. How many of you have either been pregnant or been around somebody who's pregnant? Good, that's most of you. Would you call it fun? Would you want to, yeah, let's hop on a donkey in the desert and go on a trip to a different place I don't know? For those of you that have been pregnant, you know there are things that exist like morning sickness. You have to pee quite often. There's a massive amount of discomfort because you are literally growing a human inside of you. When women have talked to me, they have never told me, yes, I thoroughly enjoyed my pregnancy. I want to do it again, not for a baby, but because I just liked being that pregnant. That's never been a topic that they've said to me. Now, maybe there's a woman out there, I'm not saying there's not, but that seems to be the general idea that pregnancy is not fun. It's not a grand old time. Now go through what poor Mary is going through. Take all of that. She doesn't have a nice car to drive in. She's on a donkey going. This was a huge thing, a massive undertaking for Joseph to go. It's not as far as, as we would think, right? It's not like hundreds of miles from Nazareth to, to, to Bethlehem, but it's far enough. There's all kinds of different people going all around because anybody that was in Israel, that is uh, 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 born in Bethlehem, it's got to go back there. You're crossing people on the road as they're going everywhere else too. Getting to Bethlehem, the road to Bethlehem, was not an easy one by any means. Yet it was done because Micah had to be fulfilled. A prophecy God made through the prophet Micah that Jesus was coming out of Bethlehem needed to be fulfilled. So he, God created the one thing that made it so Joseph had to do it. Not he wanted to go back, had to go back. Thirdly, out of Egypt, out of Egypt. Now this is another prophecy in the Old Testament. I don't remember where I wrote it out of. Hosea 11. Hosea 11 verse 1 reads, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is a beautiful verse that does two things. It calls back to the Israelites being called out of Egypt. 
and it looks forward to the Messiah coming out of Egypt. Right? And we read in Matthew as well. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel, they being the, uh, the wise men. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph, Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So if you were wondering, like, did he just make this one up? No, Matthew literally tells us where, he, where the prophecy comes from. So let's talk about it. I mentioned this looks backward and forwards. It's a call back and look forwards. But also, God uses Herod's sin for his own gain. Not Herod's, God's. Make no mistake, God can and does use our mess-ups. Now, that does not give us an excuse to be like, well, God's going to use it anyway, so I might as well just do what I want to. Not at all. Herod, I am very confident when he died, did not go spend an eternity with Jesus, the kid he tried to kill. I'm fairly confident he spent an eternity and is spending an eternity in hell. I'm not saying do what you want to. I am saying God uses the circumstances. You can't trick God, right? You can't, I was talking about it earlier, right, where the twist gets him. You can't get, God gets every twist. He sees it coming a mile away. He knows it already. He uses Herod's anger and jealousy and such against Herod. Here's the other thing. So he uses Herod to cause them to go to Egypt. But an angel shows up to Joseph. It doesn't say he shows up to Mary, just to Joseph. And says, hey Joseph, get up. Take your kid and your wife. Your kid who's roughly two years old right now, roughly, Take them and go on another long, arduous, hot journey to Egypt where you will spend a few years. Go. There's a couple of reasons I think he appears to Joseph. One, as the man, he is supposed to be the leader of the household. And I think this was, a, this was a, an opportunity that God was giving Joseph. But put yourself in Mary's shoes as well. right, Ladies, if your husband woke you up in the middle of the night and went, I just had a dream, we've got to go to Canada right now. What part? I don't want to go too far north. It gets pretty bad up there. Can we maybe go to Cabo instead? Right? Mary, yes, follows her husband, but I don't think gives him any trouble. And in fact, I think she goes, okay, let's go. Now, she, they do have one thing working in their favor. Over the past couple of years now, angels have appeared to both of them. So that might help a little bit to go, okay, we're going, round three, here we go, right? This was a massive test of the faith of Joseph and of Mary. Let me ask you this question. If they had not gone, gotten up and left, would Jesus have been killed? No, he would not have been. Jesus was the Messiah. Again, we see, just as we talked about so many times, the decisions of Mary and Joseph truly don't matter in the end. God is going to do what God is going to do. Just as if Mary had said no, Jesus would have been born to somebody else. 
Mary said yes, and she's blessed because of it. Joseph and Mary said yes to this, and they're blessed because of it. Church, I will reiterate this again and again. And in fact, let's go to let's apply it on your note sheets there. Let's talk about applying this to our lives. First off, and it's actually number two. Actually, it's not written there at all, actually. Sorry. God does not need you. God wants you. And that is infinitely better. Because if God needed you, if God needed me, I wouldn't want to serve that God. Because how's he any better than me? God wants me. In spite of my flaws and my imperfections and my sin nature, God wants me. And he wants you. It's an incredible thing. Jesus was going to be the Messiah. Whether Mary said yes, whether Joseph and Mary said yes to go to Egypt, any of it, Jesus was going to be born to somebody, a virgin, was going to be from Bethlehem and was going to come out of Egypt. It was going to happen because God said it would, no matter what Mary and Joseph decided to do. And that is, number one, hold on to the promises God makes. Hold on to the promises God makes. What are some promises that are really good to hold on to? Because, you know, we've talked about this before. You can't hold on to certain promises. Like, your descendants will not be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That was a promise made strictly and only to Abraham. You're, you will not, sorry church, none of us will have a son who rules over the kingdom of Israel. That was made to David. It's the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Covenant means promise. So what are some promises that you and I can hold on to? One, the promise of your salvation. Now, I didn't write these down, so you can feel free. The promise of the assurity of your salvation. You give your heart to him, you are his. And nothing and no one can take that. Because if they could, including you, God is not God anymore. You give your heart to him, you truly, and I mean truly give your soul and heart over to him. I don't mean you were seven and you prayed a prayer but didn't really mean it. And I'm not saying you can't get saved at seven. But I'm saying you could be 40 and pray the prayer but not really mean it. That's not giving your heart to him. But when you truly give your heart to him, he is your savior, your Lord. He is and you give it to him, there is not a thing in all of creation that can take you from him. And the only thing outside of creation is God. And God says, you're not going anywhere. Satan will try to convince you you're not good enough, that your sin separates you from God. And it does. It does not take you out of his hand if you've been placed in it. Secondly, and I hold on to this promise so much, and it, it plays in with that one. The promise that Jesus makes, that he is going to prepare a place for you and me, right? That he is going to prepare a place for you and me. It is a promise that is needed because, quite frankly, this world is horrible. It is dark. It is evil. And it comes to Satan loves to give us despair and discouragement and, and, and destroy us in those ways. And the only defense I have against it is knowing where I'm going. This is not my home. I'll be there someday. This isn't it. And as great as things might appear, right, the greatest wife you could ever have, a great church, a great family, right, none of that compares to what I'm going to have up there. And I can't wait. I don't, I'm not going yet. As far as I know, I'm not going yet. But one day I will. And I hold on to that promise. When, the, when, when it's hard and it's dark and it's despairing, I hold on to that promise. I hold on to it. 
Thirdly, and there are a bunch of promises in Scripture. Look them up sometime. I'm going to stop with this one. Hold on to the promise that he never leaves nor forsakes you. This is not a rhetorical question. How many people in all of history has God forsaken? You're not allowed to answer. I want to see if anybody else knows it. That's why I got it. Does anybody else know? How many people in all of history has God forsaken? You can answer. One, who was it? When? On the cross. For the, since our, we don't have a parabolic mic any, anywhere right now, I'll repeat it so that the, the live stream and stuff can actually hear it. Jesus on the cross. The Bible says God turns his face from him and Jesus himself cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One person knows what it is to be truly without God. And it was Jesus as he hung on the cross for you and me. You, no matter how far your sin has gone, no matter how much you've tried to turn your back on God, do not know what it is to be without him. You don't, neither do I. And here's the glorious, amazing thing. He promises you and I multiple times in scripture, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. You are mine and I love you and I'm not going anywhere. There's discussion about what makes hell so horrible. I think there's a case to be made that one of the things that makes hell so terrible is that it is the absence of the presence of God. There are people who believe, and there's a case for this as well, that it's God's wrath that is there. That would be pretty bad. Personally, and I'm not a theologian, I could be very wrong, I think what's worse is not having the presence of God at all. Plus the torment that happens, but I, I, I can't imagine that. Church, Satan will try to convince you that you are alone. You have never been alone. And when you give your heart to him, you never will be. Stand on the promises of God, right? We have this great hymn, standing on the promises of God. Stand on them. No matter what Satan tries to do, stand on that solid rock. The promises of God. God doesn't break a promise. I've broken a billion promises in my life, and I've always been a thought of myself as a man of my word. Yet I've broken promises. So have you. God has never broken one, and he never will. Lastly here, lastly, where is your faith? So, so before I get into that, I want to give you an actual practical thing to do with that first one. Spend some time, Google it. You'll get a whole list. What are the promises of God for the Christian? And start reading those scriptures and standing on them. Memorize them. Commit them to yourself so that when, not if, when pain and despair and discouragement come your way, it doesn't change what's happening, but it changes your outlook. I wanted to give you a practical thing to do with that as well. So here's the thing. Where is your faith at? Where's your faith? If, a, if, if an angel showed up in a dream to you tonight and said to you, you've got to move, I want you to go to Mexico. Not the nice resorts parts. I want you to go to the 10 miles outside of Mexico City where there's slums and people living on dirt floors, one-room shacks. Are you going? Let me make it a little simpler. If an angel showed up to you and said, the, the first person you see who's not a member of your family tomorrow, I want you to share the gospel with them. Would you do it? Here's the thing, right? And whatever it is, right? You've got to realize where is your faith at? Where's your faith at? Do you have faith? And I'm not saying you guys. I mean us in general, right? Do we have faith to follow what 
whatever it is God says. If we were told to walk around the church 13 separate times and the roof would be fixed, would we do it? Who would stay home? You don't put your hands in the air. Because quite frankly, quite frankly, a number of us would. A number of Christians would. Because our faith is not yet where it should be. Here's the glorious thing. Here's the glorious thing, though. Your faith isn't supposed to stay where it's at. With each passing moment, it's supposed to grow larger. As God does more and more and more in your life, you're supposed to have faith. I, I think about this happened, I don't know how many times when we were kids, because I'm sure I don't know of most of them, right? Because again, I was a kid. But I have clear memories of things like, what are we having for dinner tonight? We don't know. And there's a bag of groceries. How are we going to pay for this? We don't know. There's a check. I have memories in my own life of uh, that, that stuff is more faith-building stuff for people like my parents because they were the ones who were more in that, right? I was just a kid. I didn't fully grasp it yet. But as an adult, I can say things like, I'm going to use this one, and I'm not going to use names. God, how in the world are we going to fix the roof? We don't have the money to do that. We don't have the money. But we believe we've got to get it done. And boy, I'll tell you, if God doesn't bless and make it happen. And your faith grows just a little bit with each one. Because you're going, oh, okay, he took, care, he took care of me in this one. He's going to take care of me in this one as well. And so on and so forth. It grows and grows and grows and grows. Where is your faith at? I will tell you this, church. Your faith is not big enough. Neither is mine. And it never will be. There will always, let me rephrase that, there will always be room for your faith to grow. You will never reach 100% until you're up there with him and you won't have faith anymore because you won't need it because she's with him. As long as you're here, your faith has room to grow. So does mine. As long as we're here, you have room to stand on the promises. And so there's not a, there's not a theological thing out of those three uh, promises, prophecies that we talked about that I want you to just pull, except for this. God keeps the promises he makes. He's made promises to you and I. He'll keep them. Stand on your faith and allow it to continue to grow. You need it, so do I. Allow it to continue to grow. The Christmas miracle was so much bigger than we could ever imagine. It was the biggest promise God made. In my knowledge, I'm trying to remember back, it is, I'll say this, it is one of the first promises he ever made, that a Messiah will come, and he will crush the snake's head, and the snake will strike his heel. It's one of, if not the first, real promise he makes, this will happen. It took a couple thousand years, and then it happened. That snake's head is crushed. Satan's heel, or excuse me, Jesus' heel was struck. It was. It's not anymore. Stand on the promises. He keeps everyone. And allow your faith to grow. Would you pray with me? Father, as we are in the Christmas season, I, I, I thank you again for the birth of your son. I thank you again for the promises that you make that we can look back throughout Scripture and see you held. And then, Father, I ask, that, and, and, and I ask that you would help us to look back at the promises you've made to us here and now in our lives 
that you've kept and that we grow our faith through them. Father, I want to have faith like Mary and Joseph who say, Lord, whatever it is, I'm good. I'll do it. Too often, I don't. Too often, us as believers, we, we don't. I want to have faith like that, Father. Help my faith to grow. Help me to stand on your promises, on the promises you make in your word that you have kept time and time and time again, Father. I praise you. I love you. We love you. We praise you. And it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. And amen.